pray for God's blessing on His Word. Lord, this morning we come and open the Word that You have given to us from Your very own mouth through Your prophets and apostles. We praise You that You have not left us in the dark. We praise You that You have spoken to us and revealed glorious things about Yourself through the Lord Jesus and about His saving grace. And so we pray this morning that You would send Your Spirit so that we would be able to apprehend those things and believe those things so that as we live our lives, we would do so with the confidence that Your promises are eternal, everlasting, and always true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our Scripture passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You'll find that on page 976 of the Pew Bible, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. We're beginning a new series this morning that will last for a number of months as we go through the book of Ephesians together. Uh, Ephesians is a great little summary of the gospel of grace and its implications for our lives, the ways in which it ought to be worked out in the community of faith as we all trust in Jesus together. And so there's a uh, a very specific reason in which we want to study Ephesians so that we would grasp, as Paul says, the riches of his grace and then seek to live out of those riches for his glory. I'll read here these first two verses of the first chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I came in early to church as I usually do to get ready and typically there aren't many cars on the road at that hour but I did notice in my rear view mirror as I was driving in there was a truck several hundred yards behind me and he looked almost as if he was one of those trucks that I remember as a kid that was spraying insecticides in order to control the insect population. I thought that's very odd early on a Sunday morning to have Someone driving around in a truck spraying for bugs. Evidently, his exhaust system was so poor that it looks as though that's exactly what was taking place. He was pouring out smoke. And I thought to myself, I'm glad I didn't leave 30 seconds later. Otherwise, I would be behind him breathing in all those fumes that he was giving out. In a way, that's a bit of an analogy for the Christian life. So often we can be breathing in, so to speak, the kinds of things that the world is giving out. And Paul knew the dangers of things just like that, of taking in all the lies of the father of lies, the lies that the world tells us, the lies that we in our own sinful condition at times tell us, doubts about who God is, differences of opinion about what's right and true in terms of our behavior. And we can breathe those things in. And Paul is here writing to the Ephesians because he knows the climate, the atmosphere, so to speak, that is going on in Ephesus. And that they are people who are in danger, so to speak, of breathing in all the lies that the people in Ephesus have to tell them. Paul had been to Ephesians several times. The second time that he was there, he actually stayed for two years and taught them for two years, day after day after day, in the hall of Tyrannus, 
almost like a seminary education, you might say, where you would be able to go during the, the hottest part of the day when no one else wanted to be there, but if you went, you would be nourished by the Apostle Paul himself opening the Scriptures and constantly under, uh, laying forth what is true about the Gospel. But it was no idyllic setting. In fact, Ephesus, as I said to the children, was a city of about 300,000 people. It was one in which one of the great seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, was present. A temple that would have dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens. A temple in which there was this stone statue of this goddess Artemis that supposedly came down straight from heaven to be among the people of Ephesus. And when Paul began to preach there and the gospel made some inroads and all of a sudden things begin to change, a silversmith by the name of Demetrius gathered together all of his fellow artisans who would make silver idols for the goddess Artemis. Because you see, when the gospel took root, fewer people were buying these idols. And change began to take place in Ephesus and there was a pushback. Before long, there was a riot that was ensued. A riot that gathered together in the great theater there in Ephesus, which held about 50,000 people. And as people heard the testimony of Demetrius and were riled up into a frenzy, they began to shout, the book of Acts says, for two hours, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Artemis. Over and over and over for two hours. And Paul and his companions were there, some dragged in, so that they could witness this great hostility against the gospel. So Paul knew that writing to the Ephesians, now imprisoned at Rome, was very important for them, so that they would maintain the faith, that they would stay steadfast in their resolve, not breathing in all the lies around them. And the Ephesians knew the reality of having their lives marked out by the Lord Jesus Christ to live differently than the rest of the community. Ephesian Christians in many ways were marginalized. They were separated. The Roman culture was in many ways tolerant of all types of views of the great pantheon of gods, but intolerant of the Christian faith. Sounds very similar to our own day, doesn't it? where a lot of views and religions are tolerated by our culture, but not so much the Christian faith, where its demise is constantly spoken of by the people in the media, by people on the street corners, who will have nothing of the gospel, but might have anything else that's offered to them. I think we probably know instinctively too, whenever we come to faith in Jesus, that there's something different about our lives. That things have changed. As soon as we come to faith in Christ, we begin to look at the world differently. We begin to consider our lives differently. Things look altogether bright and beautiful and we have a new desire and affection for serving Christ. Yet we also begin to look at our previous life and see now, now things are changing, things are different. And all the people that I used to spend time with and all the things that I used to do are no longer the kinds of things that I want to do. Something has changed. 
And sometimes there's a pushback for that. Or for those who have grown up in Christian homes and and have always known the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's the time in which you step out into the world on your own and you plant your own two feet down and you begin to decide, I'm going to live for Jesus right here, right now. And all of a sudden, you begin to experience what it's like to make a decision for Christ, to serve Him faithfully and experience all the things that the culture brings against you. And so Paul here is writing to a people who, as he says here in verse 1, are faithful in Christ Jesus, seeking to live distinctly from the rest of the world, to look like Christ. And what he does here in the book of Ephesians is basically to equip them with the gospel of grace. Verses, or chapters 1 through 3 are really all about the heavenly perspective, you might say, of the riches of God's grace to us. In Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are an earthly outworking, you might say, of what the gospel looks like when it comes into a community and begins to change us from the inside out. So that our fellowship with one another, our community together, begins to look like the community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is writing of the riches because he knows that God is building a community that is countercultural, a whole different kind of society that looks and acts and thinks and speaks completely differently than the rest of the world. And here in this brief little greeting, Paul gives us a few clues about the way in which the gospel comes to us in our lives and begins to change everything about us. And the first thing is this, a new identity a new identity. Paul here reveals his own identity as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul begins his letter in the customary way, which was to present not only the person to whom he is writing or the persons to whom he is writing, but also himself, much like an email today does for us. It lists who is writing as well as the person to whom we are writing. And that's the convention of the day. And Paul begins by identifying himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now the name Paul literally means little one. The little one. It's interesting that the only description that we have of the apostle Paul in ancient history says this, that he was a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of a good state of body, which I take to mean that he was a little bit large around the middle, with eyebrows joining and nose somewhat hooked. In other words, Paul was a real looker for those people in his day. Here's Paul, this great man who was once the persecutor of the church, who was described in physical features that are not appealing who is willing to take upon himself this name, the little one. And what we see in Paul is that he is now a man who is made by grace. So he's not promoting himself to the world anymore, but rather taking on a very humble and lowly estate. Maybe it was a young child he was willing to be called something like the little one. But as a man, no. But it's only by the grace of God that he's able to be called such. It's a real contrast to 
the Saul who sought to persecute the church, who was going around imprisoning Christians, who not only wanted to arrest them, but would be happy to see them put to death because he was the one who was there watching as Stephen was stoned to death. And we're told that Paul was giving his approval of it all. Maybe we could say, as we used to say when I was in high school and college, that Paul had small man's disease. If he was a small man, then maybe he sought to make himself look larger than life by the way in which he sought to have this great position of authority or to institute himself as, as the one who would be the, the uh, 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 one to attack the church and destroy it for himself. For the glory of God, he thought. So maybe he had small man's disease and wanted to make himself larger than life, but now Christ has taken hold of him. And he's an altogether different man. If you've ever watched mobster movies like Goodfellas or The Godfather, you know the term, the made man. It simply means that Someone wanted to become part of the mob family, the mob institution, you might say, and someone else was willing to vouch for his character, so to speak, that he's one of us, that he's trustworthy. And in such cases, that person would eventually be tapped and told to get dressed, get ready, and come for the service, the ceremony in which you would become a made man, welcomed into the family. One like the rest of us. One who's trustworthy because we'll have your back and you'll have ours. And in a way, I think every one of us, every, every man, woman, and child is, so to speak, a, a made man or a made woman or a made child when we give ourselves to things that we want to define us. Things that we want to be the defining reality of our lives that shape everything about who we are. Certainly that was true of Paul. Certainly that was true of me before I became a Christian. Certainly that was true of many of us. But now, Paul is a grace-made man. A Christ-made man. Wanting everything about his life to honor the Lord. And I think probably the most significant aspect or characteristic of every grace-made person is that what you want the most is for Christ to be honored in your life rather than for you to be honored in your life. Just like John the Baptist said, he must become greater and I must become lesser. You know, the rest of the world is looking for attention. All you have to do is turn on the internet to realize that. If you go on Facebook or Twitter or any other website that's a social media website. People are doing anything and everything that they possibly can do to gain attention for themselves. The words that they type, the videos that they post, the pictures that are put online. Everything is about me. I want to establish me. I want to bear witness to me. But a grace-made person is the person who says... I want Jesus to be seen in me. I want Jesus to be honored in my life. I want Christ to be the one who is exalted. And so the Christian is the one who deflects attention 
from himself to bring attention to Jesus by everything that we do. Paul here speaks of the Ephesians as saints, meaning holy ones. These are people who are former pagan idol worshipers who may have even practiced the emperor cult and worshipped the emperor of the Roman Empire at this particular time. And now he calls them saints. First and foremost, because they have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. They have come to Jesus in faith. And they have trusted in Him to be the one to be the sacrifice of atonement for them. So all their sins are taken away. and They're declared righteous by His righteousness given to them. But secondly, they're saints because they're also seeking to live faithfully. In other words, they want their lives to be a testimony to Jesus. You might ask yourself, in what ways are you seeking to garner attention for yourself? In what ways are you seeking to build your own image to establish yourself? Or is your life all about establishing the glory and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take a humble and lowly position? Are you even willing to be called a little one so that Jesus would be honored in you? And so Paul here speaks of this new identity, but he also speaks of a new calling. He refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle is a word that simply means sent one. And the apostles were sent by Jesus himself. Christ is the one who instituted their authority and then sent them out to bear witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's also interesting that the word apostle is used of other people in the New Testament too. It's used of people like Barnabas who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Because the, the New Testament makes a distinction between apostles sent by Jesus who have Jesus' authority and apostles who are sent by the church who come with a derived authority from the church. Paul here is saying, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. One, he says, by the will of God. He did that on the road to Damascus where Jesus revealed Himself to the Apostle Paul and called him into apostolic ministry and said, I will show you how much you must suffer for my sake. Paul very much needed that sense of assurance that he was sent by Jesus Himself to be the one who would speak for Christ. There would be many detractors in his ministry. Many who would malign his name. Many who would say, you are not an apostle. Many who would say, your writings are not trustworthy. The things that you preach and declare are not true. And Paul would need the assurance that yes, Jesus has called him into ministry. So that when he goes out and there are people who oppose him, that he would remain steadfast and continue faithfully to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Such assurance is what enabled him to press on. And you see some of the marks of his ministry here. Chapter 1, verse 15, speak of him praying for the saints. Chapter 3, 
verse 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Constantly in Paul's letters, the way in which he greets the saints is to say, I am praying for you. In other words, the authority that Jesus gave to him doesn't make him self-sufficient, but it makes him a man of prayer who is constantly dependent upon Jesus to accomplish the work of ministry. It also means that he's a servant of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Of this gospel I was made a minister or servant according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is a servant of the gospel of grace. So much so that he said, I will become all things to all people. As I mentioned before, Paul's previous name was Saul. Some people take that to mean that when he was converted, he became a new man and took a new name. But it was actually quite a bit of time later before he went by Paul as opposed to Saul. One other theory is that maybe he actually had two names from his childhood. Being from Tarsus, a a, a Roman city, but also being a Jew, he probably needed two identities because he lived in two different worlds. And here Paul takes on a whole different name so that he might become all things to all people. In other words, he wants to be a servant of the gospel through and through. And finally, we see that he's also one who suffers for Christ and the church. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's writing from Rome in prison. A prisoner of the Gospel. He's willing to suffer all things that he might fulfill the calling that God has given to him to preach the good news about Jesus. Now we're not... Paul, we're not an apostle, but in many ways the marks of apostolic ministry, some of them are marks that every Christian should bear, just like we're not the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are marks of Jesus' ministry that every Christian should bear, and certainly being people of prayer, people who seek to serve the gospel in all that we do, and people who are willing to suffer anything and everything rather than give up our confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things ought to be marks of every single Christian. In other words, even though we're in the world, we're not living for the world. We're living for God's eternal purposes. We're living for the gospel of grace. Paul, as I said, in a sense, was a man who had dual citizenship. One sense he was a citizen of Rome, but another sense he was a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's true of us too. Paul writes here to the saints who are in Ephesus. In Ephesus. Now the words in Ephesus are not actually in the earliest manuscripts that we have for the book of Ephesians. Most likely the reason for that was this was a circular letter sent around Asia Minor to various churches there, meant for all of them. 
And each church could write in their own words to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Laodicea, to the saints at Colossae. And we too, you might say, could write in there to the saints in Hendersonville or wherever you're from. Because we all live in two different places, don't we? We live in the kingdom of God and we live on the earth in whatever place that God has called us to. And what we are called to be, though we're not apostles ourselves, we are called to bear witness to Jesus in everything and in every part of our lives. I remember when I first moved to Clemson to work for RUF as an intern. The center of gravity of Clemson, of course, is the campus itself, the University of Clemson. But there's another center of gravity too, and it's called Max Drive-In. It's this small hole in the wall, but it's been there for decades, and everybody who's anybody in Clemson goes to Max Drive-In. And I remember going there with the students and some of the RUF staff for the first time, and I spoke to the person across the counter from me who worked there, and I asked a question about some particular piece of memorabilia. I don't remember if it was a picture of a football player or a baseball player or someone. And they looked back at me with a blank stare and then said, you're not from around here, are you? And I wasn't. And in a way, when the world looks at us, and sees the way in which we live our lives. And sees our confession of Jesus. They ought to be able to say, you're not from around here, are you? You're from a different place. And what we know is that it's true. We're from the kingdom of God that we live here. And that should be the testimony of our lives. People ought to say that about us. In other words, we need to leave a footprint for the Lord Jesus. What impact are you having in the place that you reside today? What impact are you having on the people around you in your neighborhood? The people in which you work with? The people that you spend time recreating with? In what sense are you leaving a footprint? In we might be able to ask that about our church as well. What footprint is Reformation Church leaving on this community? Are people standing up and taking notice that there's something different about us? That there's a different calling placed upon our lives? And we're living for different values than the rest of the world. What would that mean for you today to do that? Because if we're a follower of Christ, that's what it means. Well, finally, not only a new identity, a new calling, but also, very briefly, a new provision. I think the forces in Ephesus must have been, been at least visually impressive and overpowering. To see tens of thousands of people gathering together in the theater, chanting, Great is Artemis. To see one of the seven wonders of the world in your back door and people constantly flocking there, tens of thousands flocking there to worship. There must have been a sense where Paul and the rest of the Ephesians were overwhelmed by the, by the cultural forces that were at work, by the powers of 
people going to the temple and engaging in this type of pagan idolatry. What do the Christians have? Well, Paul says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in, in the face of all of that, and for Paul in the face of imprisonment and, and a pending death, we have grace and we have peace. Grace is God's favor towards sinners who deserve just the opposite. And yet His grace has come to us in Christ. And He has loved us with an everlasting love so that His Son would be willing to die for our sins and cleanse us so that we could spend all of eternity with the Heavenly Father. Eternal pleasures at His right hand. But not only that, peace, He says. More than just peace of mind, peace of conscience, but a wholeness to our state of life. That things are being put back the way they ought to be. A sense of wellness about us. A sense of health about our lives. In other words, real power comes when the grace and the peace of the Gospel begin to flood into our lives. Paul experienced these things, didn't he? It was now the marks of grace written across his life that characterized the Apostle Paul. So that he was not seeking to live for himself, but the Lord Jesus. It was the peace of the Gospel that began to restore relationships. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Paul to have friendships prior to the Gospel. His constant hatred, his self-righteousness, not a great formula for having good friendships. And yet when the Gospel comes and, and the peace of the Gospel begins to reign, it, it transforms our relationships, doesn't it? Some of us know what it's like to have hardships, whether it's in relationships with family, or relationships with friends, or co-workers. And you see, it's only when the peace of the Gospel begins to reign in places like that that our relationships begin to be endowed with that kind of peace. And so actually what Paul is saying here about this grace and peace is that the grace of the Gospel leads to peace. An everlasting peace for everyone who calls upon the name of Christ. Because you notice where it comes from. It's from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if we're going to live as the new community, the new community of the Gospel, the people who are holy saints living for Jesus, whose community looks like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then actually what we need are the riches of the Gospel of grace that Paul speaks of here in the book of Ephesians. And so for the next few months, that will be the focus of our studies. To see all that Jesus has done for us and everything that He gives to us so that He might continually make us into new people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks for the Gospel of grace. We thank You for the ways in which You have already worked in us. 
not only in this particular church, but other churches in which people who are present here today reside. And Lord, we pray that you would continue that work so that people might look at us and say, you're not from around here. And they might recognize the marks of your grace and the holiness of your character written across our lives so that Jesus would be the one who would be exalted and glorified as we become lesser and he becomes greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.